Thank you, Alex. Good morning to you. It's good to be in the house of the Lord together. If you have children, you'd like them to be in Sunday school up through grade six. They can be dismissed at this time. For the rest of you, turn to your copy of God's Word to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Back in our study this morning. It's my prayer for you this year as you, uh, as you evaluate all the things that you'd like to do differently. Perhaps at the top of the list will be a daily time in the Word of God. If you haven't made that your habit, understand the Word of God was made to be read that way, a daily intake of food that you might be able to understand the will of the Lord. He has one will, explains it in his word very clearly to us, that you might be able to hold that holy standard up before your life, that you'll be encouraged by the blessings that belong to you and your position in Christ. So let that be part of that. If you don't know how to do that, if you've never done that, we do provide a trifold back in the back, and you can grab that. Or you can, if, you're a, uh, if you do your Bible reading on a tablet or your phone, you can go to Uversion, download the app. They have many one-year uh, read-throughs that you can plug into or you can just begin to read and read through in a year and just start again every every year that the blessings of that will be yours and the maturity of will comes from that last time we were together we laid a foundation for our new section marks of ministry from second corinthians 12 we're going to turn there you're going to be in a lot of places in your bible today so have it ready you're going to be looking around as we have a lot of foundation to lay it'll be uh, it'll be a joy to do that together picking up at verse 11 i have become Foolish, you yourselves compelled me. Actually, I should have been commended by you, for in no respect was I inferior to the most eminent apostles, even though I am a nobody. Verse 12, the signs of a true apostle were performed among you with all perseverance by signs and wonders and miracles. For in what respect were you treated as inferior to the rest of the churches, except that I myself did not become a burden to you? Forgive me this wrong. Stop right there. The last time we were together, we really only had time to see verse 11. Read that back there again with me, if you would. Uh, I have become foolish. You yourselves compelled me. Actually, I should have been commended by you, for in no respect was I inferior to the most eminent apostles, even though I am a nobody. And we saw from verse 11 last time, as we began to lay this groundwork, uh, same repeated pattern of Paul having to come to his own defense. The point of the statement is he shouldn't have had to do it. We see that often, Paul would say, someday you'll appreciate me, perhaps in heaven we'll, you'll know all that's done. We, we've seen this pattern over and over again. But the point of the statement here is he shouldn't have had to defend himself. People should have stood with him when he came under fire. He rebuked them in a very kind way and just said, you know, I was owed, I was obliged commendation by you. He doesn't ask for, or he doesn't ask for an apology. He's not asking for uh, anything else, just you could have commended me. He, he had a right to be commended because the people were obliged to him. And on top of that, they should have urged the false teachers and the backbiters and the discord sowers to pack their bags and be gone. They did not do it. And to the contrary, not only did they not ask them to leave, they were deceived by them and still are to some extent uh, by bad doctrine, false teaching, and claims of accomplishments that only belong to Paul. And after Paul's foolishness, who has he won over? And we can see very clearly, uh, no one. Nobody is ready to denounce the bogus leaders for what they are. Paul isn't getting credit for the labor that he accomplished. Uh, the Corinthians won't defend the gospel or the first man to deliver it to them. And that has put Paul in a position to do what he has to do. And as we know, the apostles' tactic is to, and has been, to bring to their notice, albeit with the greatest possible reluctance, his trip to heaven, and the difficulty of his life, which aligns with what Jesus said would be the lot of those who were his apostles. I've become foolish, he said. You compelled me to do it. 
For he says, I was in no respect inferior to the most eminent apostles, even though I am a nobody. And we saw this understatement before. There's nothing in their racial, social, or educational backgrounds which he does not more than match. And then in ministry, he is more, uh, way far above them. We saw that when we looked at that passage. He says, for no respect, that's in no category, do I come up short. But then he says, but I'm a nobody. And he can't resist saying that because that's how he feels. And we looked at that from 1 Corinthians 3, 7 last time. And then we saw, neither is he who plants or he who waters anything. So this is his general evaluation of his own uh, personal um, worth. Very common theme for Paul. But it's somewhat sarcastic here because that's exactly what the false teachers are saying about it, that he was a nobody. Paul has said over and over again, I'm an earthen vessel. I'm a former blasphemer and a persecutor. I'm a nobody, whatever I am, I am by the grace of God which is in me, 1 Corinthians 15, 9 and 10. So as far as compared to them, I'm not inferior to any of them in any category, but I am a nobody. And, and this applies really, as he says, to the eminent apostles. He's really uh, talking to the true apostles like Paul and the ones who think they're the true apostles, like those who are false and the ones that are in the church now. The false ones are going to think he's actually talking about them when he says eminent apostles. And the true apostles, uh, they, uh, they won't care about the title because they don't care about stuff like that. So it's kind of going to ring true uh, about who he's actually speaking about by who celebrates the title. False apostles always want to be noted. They want to be eminent. And so it's no different now than it was then. Now, as we've seen several times in these two letters, Paul has had to foolishly defend himself and the authenticity of his ministry. And there have been two main points to his defense. The first one was the Corinthian church itself. That's a testimony to the Lord, that's a Lord's stamp of approval on his ministry and, and on his call. We saw that in 1 Corinthians 9, 2. And then the second one was Paul's manner of life that recommended him. And we saw additionally some of that in chapter 11, but we've seen that before. Uh, basically, the suffering that has come to him as a result of being a true apostle, and that comes to all true preachers of the kingdom of darkness, uh, in the kingdom of darkness. And, and, and then the second part was he was never a burden to them. So he never, he never asked for any kind of salary. They didn't support him in any way. And that confirms that he is a true apostle. Now, the false apostles don't get any credit for any of that, and so uh, they can, uh, Paul can stand by himself in that category. Now, let's look at our passage today and get the sense of the passage as it fits into this context of the first century establishment of the church and the sign and miracle gifts that were a part of that early time. Look at verse 12, if you will. We're going to spend some time here. You'll see why in just a minute. It's a very important passage and one that brings us to this idea and understanding of sign gifts and wonders as it applies to first century and today. Verse 12 says, the signs of a true apostle were performed among you with all perseverance by signs and wonders and miracles. Now, Paul introduces a third essential qualification. First of all, the Corinthian church is God's stamp of approval. Secondly, Paul's manner of life is suffering and the fact that he didn't take any, any uh, support from the church. And then thirdly, this next qualification, the signs, he says, of an apostle. And the signs there have been in abundance given to validate the apostles' ministry, and they were worked out, he says, among you by God. Paul says, I'm an apostle by virtue of the fact that there is supernatural power at work in this ministry. And the signs of a true apostle were performed among you, he says. Then at the end of the verse, he says, by signs and wonders and powers, literally powers, mighty deeds. That's the word dunamis in the Greek, the word for dynamite. Uh, he says, look, I'm going to talk about power. And so he gets everybody's attention. Now, we know Paul didn't like to talk about visions, and he took 
a lot of steps to make sure that he didn't do that. He didn't like to talk about revelations from the Lord. And you perhaps remember back in chapter 12, verse 1, he says it's not profitable, but I'll go on to visions and revelations. And when he says it's not profitable, he just means that it's not helpful and it's not useful. And the reason is that because it's not verifiable. Paul says, you know, I can't prove this ever happened and there's no way to verify it. So it doesn't help to say you had a vision and a revelation from God as evidence of your apostleship or as a credential of your apostleship because I am the only one that it happened to and I have to tell you about it. You weren't there, so it can't be verified. And again, and, and just, as, just uh, as a side note, as a footnote, that's the opposite of what happens today. Um, people want to talk about their visions. They want to talk about their revelations from the Lord as if that verifies them and places them in a position of authority and leadership. Paul says it's the opposite. If it's a vision, if it's a revelation, I'm not going to talk about it. That's not profitable because it's subjective. But when it comes to sign gifts, he says, and he still doesn't want to boast, and he still says it's foolishness, but they compel him. The sign gifts are visible, and they're repeatable. And, and what did occur was very clearly the power of God at work. So they saw miracles, and they saw things that caused them to be astonished, and they were signs pointing to Paul as a true apostle, and they validated the message that he brought. Now, the issue in modern Christianity is this, that there are people all over the place claiming to do signs and wonders and miracles. Is that not true? You don't have to look very far. You just go on YouTube and just look for signs, wonders, and miracles, and you'll see a hundred videos uh, in your first page that uh, claim to be modern-day signs, wonders, and miracles, and claim to be, we've seen, modern-day apostles. And so this is not a new development. In fact, it's been going on for years and years. In fact, it was going on in Corinth. This is precisely the reason why Paul has to bring it up. And it's confusing for many people, and not just believers, non-believers too. People want to see the supernatural at work. It's very enticing to them. People want to come, and you hear this often in certain circles, I want to feel like I've been in church. I want to feel this emotional high. I want to see some power from God. Or maybe it's doubt looking for proof, like the Jews in the first century who chased Jesus around and kept saying, show us a sign, show us a sign, show us a sign, after he'd done so many and finally he said, no more signs I'll give to you except for the sign of Jonah. That's all you're going to see. Or, and this is even more sad, maybe they're desperate and they need a miracle. This is one of the saddest things that I see over and over again where you call somebody in who says they can do a miracle and somebody who has a, a chronic or, or critical or even a fatal type of illness and they put their hands on them as if somehow they're going to raise them up. And any of those three can make people prime for deception. Any of those three things. You want to see a supernatural thing at work and so you're looking for it. You want to, you stout looking for proof. You want God to prove himself that he's there or, or you need it. You need a miracle and you're desperate and you can be prime for deception. And we saw from chapter 11 that false teachers during Paul's time were agents of Satan. That's still true today. They claim to be servants of Christ. But we saw in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 13, as he spoke about them, he said, Such men are false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. No wonder. So, in other words, they've set up like a Halloween costume. They've come looking the part and set themselves up as if they're apostles. So they're calling themselves apostles, and they're calling themselves uh, workers of Christ. And then he says, no wonder they do this whole charade, for even Satan himself disguises himself as an angel of light. Therefore, it's not surprising if his servants 
also disguised themselves as servants of righteousness whose end will be according to their deeds. And so as we read that passage back a few months ago, it, it, I, I mentioned to you perhaps when they read this letter in front of the Corinthian church, that was kind of embarrassing to the false apostles who probably were sitting on the front row wanting to be eminent. Or they were in the seats back here, in the royalty seats, you know, where people said who were important. And then this letter is being read, and that's probably a little bit like up in your face. So, earlier in the chapter, Paul was concerned. In fact, he was concerned about the false teachers because he said to the church in verse 3, he said, I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. See, that's what happens with false teachers. People think, now I have the full story, and so now I understand everything completely. It's not that they're rebelling against what they think is sound doctrine. It's that they think now they have all the theology. They only had part of it before. And that's the deception. And Paul says, I'm concerned that you're going to be moving away from this simplicity and devotion to Christ. For if one comes and preaches another Jesus whom we've not preached, or you receive a different spirit whom you've not received, or a different gospel which you've not accepted, you bear this beautifully. Those three things, we talked about them at length, and if you missed that, you can go back to that sermon and listen to that. But just like in the first century where people were deceived, particularly about the work of the Holy Spirit, which we see in Corinth, it wasn't the Holy Spirit. It was a different spirit. They're, they're confused about the work of the Holy Spirit. A lot of people are deceived today as well. But Paul says, you know the difference because you saw the signs of a true apostle coming through me. The signs of a true apostle were performed among you. So God was then authenticating his true apostles by certain signs, wonders, and miracles. Now, what's a sign? Well, a sign basically is something that points to something or points a certain way. It's, it's in the most general, broadest sense here. It identifies some certain thing, like if you're driving on the road and it says the bridge ices before the road, you know what to expect on a day that's below freezing. If you're driving on a mountain road and you see, you know, a hairpin turn coming up, you know what to expect. It's pointing towards something. This is very much the same way we understand it. Sign is just pointing to something. Uh, it usually, as it comes in uh, the, on the road as well as in the Bible, it's an unusual circumstance that draws attention to someone or something. And it's important. And it's used in the broadest possible sense here. And I, I think it's a, as a footnote, it's important to point out that signs in the first century were not limited to the apostles. And further, uh, it would appear that the original credentials for apostleship did not include miracle working. When particularly you think about them picking Mattathias to replace Judas, they didn't say anything about signs and wonders and miracles because that hadn't occurred yet and the Lord hadn't started that. What did they say? They just said that, the that uh, um, an apostle had to be someone who traveled with Jesus during his earthly ministry, so he was called by Jesus himself. And number two, the apostle had to be someone who saw the risen Christ. Those were the two requirements in order to replace Judas with Mattathias. And, and now we know that, that miracles were performed by the apostles generally, and Peter and John in particular, we see that quite often. But apart from this verse where Paul says one of the qualifications of a true apostle is signs, wonders, and miracles, there doesn't appear to be any other place in the New Testament where it's stated explicitly that apostolic ministry would be validated by miraculous powers. Now, we see it happen, so we understand it did occur, but we didn't see that as a qualification. Paul adds it here. And it doesn't make it any less important. I think it's notable, though, that he puts it here. And even men who were not apostles, like Stephen and others, performed wonders. Uh, their ministries were, so to speak, uh, validated by signs, though they were not apostles. In fact, if you think about Acts chapter 6, verse 8, there's a great example of that. 
Stephen, of course, is doing his ministry, and he, of course he ends up being stoned, and Paul holds the jackets, the, the coats of those who are doing it. But here it says, Stephen, full of grace and power, and that's, that's important. We looked at that, didn't we? We looked at grace and power, and that was part. We, saw, we get to see Jesus, and he's full of grace because the Father is, and so those who know him are full of grace. Uh, Stephen's full of grace and power, was performing great wonders and signs among the people. What was it doing? Validating his message, wasn't it? And in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7, Paul is speaking to the church, and we looked at this at length. You can go back and listen to this as we, we, we won't go as deep today. Paul says to the church, but to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. In other words, he's talking about spiritual gifts. You, were, you received a spiritual gift when you came to faith, and it's made for the common good of the church. That's the context here. So you were given a spiritual gift. If you're not serving it with it in the church, then you're in sin. Because it's made to help the church. And so we miss out on your gift and you miss out on ours. Verse 8. For to one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit, and to another the word of knowledge according to the same Spirit. To another faith by the same Spirit, and another gift of healings by one Spirit. And to another the effecting of miracles, and to another prophecy, and to another the distinguishing of spirits, and to another various kinds of tongues, and to another the interpretation of tongues. Now, that's not an exhaustive list, but it is a list, and we know that were gifts were given, and they were given in the context of the early church, and that's all we know. In Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1, for this reason, we must pay close attention, closer attention to what we've heard so that we do not drift away from it, for if the words spoken through angels proved unalterable, and every transgression and disobedience received a just penalty talking about the, the Ten Commandments, which we know that was written by and delivered by angels from the word of the Lord. How will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? After it was at the first spoken through the Lord, it was, mark this, confirmed to us by those who heard, God also testifying with them, both by signs and wonders and by various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. So God testified that the message was correct and he confirmed it. And how did he do it? He did it by signs and wonders and by various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit. Now, back to Paul. Now, how do you know a man is an apostle as opposed to a false apostle? Well, Paul says, because the signs of a true apostle are on his life. Namely, as we've said before, there were a number of specific requirements for an apostle that are impossible for anyone today. And these include the following. As we just said, an apostle was an eyewitness of Jesus' resurrection. Not only were the original 12 apostles to be eyewitnesses of Jesus' resurrection, all who had the gift of the apostle had to have seen the risen Christ. They had to be direct associates of Jesus, those who uh, were with him or were with Jesus. And only a select few, a subset of that group of people who were his disciples in the first generation of Christians would meet that requirement. Obviously, then, no one today could qualify for the gift of an apostle if an apostle had to be an eyewitness of the resurrection of Jesus. And, and we know from Paul and from the passages, the gift of apostle was accompanied by miraculous signs in order to lay the foundation, again, the foundation only has to be laid once, and sign gifts were just that. They verified the speaker or the message. They also had unique authority. We saw this uh, to receive special revelation from the Lord. Their calling and their commissioning by Jesus included the ability to receive and communicate divine truth. If you remember, on the night of his betrayal, Jesus promised them the following to this select group. 
In John 16, verse 12, he says this, I have many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. He's getting ready to leave. They're full of sorrow. They know something's going to happen. It's going to be terrible. And so he says, listen, there's a lot more stuff I want to tell you. You're not going to be able to handle it right now. Verse 13, but when he, the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he'll disclose to you what is to come. And he will glorify me, for he will take of mine and will disclose it to you. All things that the Father has are mine. Therefore, I said, he takes of mine and will disclose it to you. Notice, as you see that passage, the promise of Jesus that the Holy Spirit would guide these men into all truth concerning what Jesus said and did. Mark it. Only those who were with Jesus from the beginning could claim this particular promise. Nobody else would have been in a position to know what they knew or have seen what they saw. And the Holy Spirit specifically was going to bring these things back to their remembrance. So, beloved, can I say to you again, and we're foreshadowing a little bit next week's message. If someone stands up and says, I have a word directly from the Lord to you, is that possible? According to that verse right there? If you had to be someone who spent time with Jesus on earth and had to see the risen Christ in order to receive divine revelation, is it possible to have divine revelation now? Not if you understand the simple meaning of the Word of God, okay? And this is important to point out. Because if someone stands up and says to you extemporaneously, I have a word of the Lord, word from the Lord to you, and this is revelation to you, they're false. At that point, you turn away from that speaker. There's no possible way that whatever comes afterwards is going to be any good, okay? This is important to understand. And if you think about 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 8, and you think about the Apostle Paul, Paul talks about himself and he says this, because obviously people are going to say, well, you know, you weren't walking around with Jesus and you didn't see the risen Christ. And so he's going to say this. And last of all, as to one untimely born, who's he speaking about? Himself. He appeared to me also. For I am the least of the apostles and not fit to be called an apostle. Again, Paul's humility. Why? Because I persecuted the church. The very church I now serve, I persecuted. I hauled people to jail. I stood by while they were murdered. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace towards me did not prove vain. God did the work in me, and, and he approved me. And it appears to indicate pretty clearly that Paul was the last person that Jesus Christ personally appeared to and commissioned. The Apostle Paul saw the Lord on the Damascus Road. There's no question about that. And several other times, and was personally called out of darkness into light and called to be an apostle by Jesus himself who met him on the road and took him to the point where he wanted to use him and then ordained that ministry and, sh and sent it out. And there's only one, beloved, if you think about the Word of God, there's only one other recorded appearance of the risen Christ after the appearance to Paul and that's to the Apostle John on the Isle of Patmos. Jesus appointed the apostles to do the founding work of the church, and the foundations only to be laid one time. After the apostles' death, other offices besides apostleship, not requiring the eyewitness relationship with Jesus, would carry on the work. And the requirements, if you have a simple understanding of the Word of God, cannot be fulfilled by anyone today. And so like today, as it was in the first century, if you have this whole line of people and they all claim to be apostles, you look for the ones who bear the marks of an apostle, the signs of an apostle. In other words, God signaled out who his apostles were with certain signs. This is a true apostle. Number one, you, you saw the risen Christ. You walked around with Christ. Uh, number two, that you 
have an understanding and be able to transmit what God wants you to say and you can write all that stuff. And number three, signs and wonders and gifts. So God signaled out who his apostles would be with these certain signs. This is a true apostle. And Paul was added to that. And he says in verse 12, he says, the signs of a true apostle were performed among you with all perseverance by signs and wonders and by miracles. And when he says all perseverance, that's an important point to point out. It's the noun hupomone. It's with endurance. We've looked at that word before. What we know of this is it's just a character trait of someone who's not swerved from his deliberate purpose and his faithfulness. And if you think about Paul's ministry, think about how he was treated. He didn't stop doing the apostolic ministry. But you can imagine that someone else might have thought that, right? I mean, who wants to be back, somebody backbite and, and, and uh, destroy his character and speak badly of him and not listen to him and disregard what he says? And then he has this apostolic ministry where he can do, you know, the Lord through him does this work of healing and miracles and all this stuff. And you can think, I'm not doing that there. They don't appreciate me. Why would I keep doing that among them? But Paul says, no, you know what? In spite of the circumstances, I push through. I persevered in all my ministry, but particularly by signs and wonders and miracles. And as we mentioned last week, that's the third proof of his apostleship. What he really wants you to look at is the signs and wonders and powers. And the word begins, again, is that power is the word dunamis. That's the word where we get dynamite. And that, you look at those things as, mark this, credentials. He's referring specifically to the supernatural deeds done through him. And how could they question it? Because he says you, they were performed in verse 12. Among you, you were there and you saw them. Now, what was this miracle power that the apostles had? Well, you're going to have to go back to chapter 10 of Matthew, and it's going to tell you right there. When Jesus called the 12, and then later Paul, which we explained already, uh, who were his disciples and later designated his apostles, his messengers, that's the word apostle, a messenger, he gave them authority. In Matthew chapter 10, verse 1, he says this, Jesus summoned his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. And then verse 8, heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons, freely you've received, freely give. So, number one, he gave them miracle powers, supernatural power over unclean spirits to cast them out, power over Satan's kingdom of demons. Number two, he gave them power to heal every kind of disease and every kind of sickness, healing power with no limitations. So they could heal every kind of disease and every kind of sickness, and their healing was always the same. Immediate, complete, instantaneous healing, and they had power over the kingdom of darkness. They could cast demons out. Now, beloved, again, I say to you, if someone in the modern day comes and says to you, I have the power to cast out demons, what do you understand about that? You understand that they're not an apostle. They can't possibly be an apostle. And so now they don't have that power. And we don't see that claimed anywhere in the New Testament. After Jesus' apostles, it expired. But we see this all the time. This is very prominent. Even in our city, there are people who say this is an active gift. Now, the apostle Paul also had the same power. And he demonstrated it in Corinth. And if you go back to Acts 18, um, you see the foundation of the founding of the Corinthian church. What we don't see mentioned here uh, are signs, other than Paul's calling and, and, and seeing the risen Christ, and nothing of wonders and miracles in Acts 18. We just see the founding of the church. We see where he went, we see who he spoke to, who he lived with, and what began, and his fear, and the Lord coming to him, Jesus coming to him in a vision, saying, don't be afraid, Paul, I have many people in this city, continue to work, no one's going to harm you. 
And so Paul has a lot of doubt, and he gets encouraged by the Lord there, and then he moves into his ministry. But if you look in Acts 19, and here's where I'm going to need you to track along with me, and I think you'll find it's very rewarding. So please do that. So Acts 19, verse 11, we see Luke relay to this to us. Verse 11, he says this, and this is in Ephesus, uh, but we can see this is a cross sample of what's going on with Paul, which is why Paul said, listen, this was obvious among you. God was performing, Luke says of Paul, extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. Verse 12, so that handkerchiefs or aprons were even carried from his body to the sick and diseases left them and evil spirits went out. So he is performing these miracles and he doesn't even have to be there. That's pretty remarkable, wouldn't you say? I mean, the church witnessed it. We see shysters doing that today, right, sending prayer hankies and whatever that they touched and you grab them and they're going to heal you. We, see, we know that's all false, right? We, we recognize that. But that actually occurred in the first century. Paul uh, and the Lord working through him did some extraordinary miracles. And then some others come along and they think, you know, if Paul can do this, then so can we, don't you? And so look at verse 13. But also some of the Jewish exorcists who went from place to place attempted to name over those who had the evil spirits, the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, I adjure you by Jesus whom Paul preaches. In other words, they're going in there, by Jesus, in Jesus' name, I'm going to cast this demon out of you. Jesus' name. And Paul does this, same power. What was the problem? Were they apostles? No. Were they, did they have any authority to do that? No. Verse 14. Seven sons of one Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. So it's not even hypothetical. It was actually going on. Still going on today. Only what's going to happen here needs to happen today. I, I wish it would. I mean, think that would be a, a great lesson to learn. But the Lord's not doing that in His grace. Verse 15. And the evil spirit answered and said to them, I recognize Jesus, and I know about Paul, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them and subdued all of them and overpowered them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. This is one to seven. And they got a thrashing. Verse 17. This became known to all, both Jews and Greeks, who lived in Ephesus, and fear fell on all of them, and the name of the Lord Jesus was being magnified. It didn't hurt the church. When that happened, it helped the church, right? They realized, hey, some are shysters. They don't really do this kind of thing, but others are true. Many also of those who had believed kept coming, confessing, and disclosing their practices. Verse 19, and began burning, and many of those who practiced magic brought their books together and began burning them in the sight of everyone, and they counted up the price of them and found it 50,000 pieces of silver. So, verse 20, the word of the Lord was growing mightily and prevailing. Why? Paul is doing these wonderful miracles. He's not getting credit for that. The Lord is looking mighty, right? Even the Lord chastening those who did it falsely brought attention to the Lord and his authority. So, a lot like the Egyptian magicians in, in the presence of Moses where, you know, they, there was a point in time where they couldn't do it anymore, right? The demons were helping them, but there was a point in time they could no longer duplicate what Moses was doing. It, just like that, these Ephesian exorcists, they're unable to imitate Paul, and so the false apostles here and in Corinth have to give ground. Basically, Paul says, God has confirmed my apostleship among you so abundantly that it requires no proof. Uh, Paul declares modestly but correctly that he's an instrument rather than the author 
of the miracles. And you need to really mark that, beloved. God, God deigned to demonstrate beyond question that the apostle is who he claimed to be. God verified the message and the ministry of Paul like he did with the other apostles and others early in the first century. And if you think about it, we'll just do kind of a quick survey before we get over to um, Acts 28.8. You can look there in just a minute. In Acts 13, Paul blinded Elymas. Do you remember that? He was a sorcerer who was following Paul around while he was doing his ministry. And Paul just got tired of him following him around and contradicting everything he said, turned around and made him blind. Do you remember this? So Elymas couldn't even see. So that's a miracle, isn't it? Elymas is like, where'd you go? I can hear it. The crowd's leaving. I don't know where we're going. Acts 14, he heals the cripple. We saw what happened in Acts 19. Acts 20, he brought Eutychus back to life after he dozed off during a sermon and fell out of a window and died. Do you remember that? Paul preached a long sermon. You're familiar with how that goes. And uh, Eutychus falls out. He dies. He falls two stories to the ground. He's dead. Paul uh, goes down, prays for him, raises him back up so he could finish the sermon. And uh, after being delivered from a shipwreck, do you remember this? He's picking up wood for the fire. A snake comes out of the, fi- uh, out of the wood and grabs onto s- his arm. Do you remember? And everybody knows it's a viper and it's poisonous. Paul pulls it off, throws it in the fire, and nothing happens to him. And if you look at Acts ch- chapter 28, and uh, verse 8. And it happened that the father of Publius, do you remember this, was lying in a bed. This is right after this occurred with the fire. They're all dried out. They're staying there a few days waiting for a ship. And uh, he has recurrent fever and dysentery. And Paul went to see him after he had prayed. He laid his hands on him. He healed him. And after this happened, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases were coming to him and uh, getting cured. So, you have in the book of Acts an indication of the miracles of the Apostle Paul. Significant, and the Bible says extraordinary miracles that indicated that Paul was an apostle along with all the other things that we've seen. And calling himself last of the apostles born out of time. And you'll notice that neither Paul nor any of the others demonstrating sign gifts ever claimed the power was theirs. He says the sign of a true apostle were performed. That's passive. It means the work was being done. The power was coming from someone besides him. They were being performed through Paul, obviously, but the Lord was doing it. That's, uh, he doesn't say, I performed them among you. They were performed. It's not just a reflection of his modesty. It amounts to a renunciation of any claim that he was a miracle worker. The, apostle Paul, the apostles never made claims to be miracle workers. They realized that these things were not within the range of human capability. See, they were simply channels through which God performed these things. And, and so today, when a man claims to be a miracle worker, when he claims to have some great power to work miracles, including healings and casting out of demons and speaking in a known tongue, unknown to the speaker, but known to the hearer. He then turns the miracle gifts into something that they never were and that they're not, and it becomes a type of validation of holiness and power. That wasn't what it was. The apostles never claimed such power, but only claimed to be channels through which God did mighty things. Now, look at the three things, uh, the three terms used at the end of the verse, signs, wonders, and miracles. Look there in chapter 12, verse 12. And they all refer to the same thing. They're referring to miracles. Signs basically indicate something. They have effect. They have intent. Uh, but this is not for show. Miracles were not just a performance. They weren't entertainment for the crowds. All the healing and the casting out of demons and the other miracle gifts were just to deliver people 
to a point where they could hear the message. It wasn't done necessarily to deliver them from the demons. And I think you need to see that. How many other demon-possessed people were there? Probably thousands. How many other hungry people were there? Tens of thousands. How many other people were lame? How many other people couldn't see? It wasn't necessarily to deliver them. What was it for? Was it to make everybody feel better? Miracles indicated something. The miracle was just a sign pointing to something or someone else. And what was it pointing to? It was pointing to the true apostle, signs of a true apostle. I think you can see that, and that's the foundation I want to lay for you today. There's a real wide, deep foundation we can stand on very securely if we understand the context of signs, miracles, and wonders. Why did God want to point to the true apostles? So that people would listen to the message that they preached. And if you compare that to today, you would think that the miracle was the end in itself. And that's the opposite of what we see in the scripture. People come up and they're supposedly healed because they set up a meeting. It's going to be a healing meeting or whatever. And the miracle is the end in itself, the healing or the tongue or the deliverance. And it's supposed to demonstrate the great power of this wonder worker, see, who can do these things. And in Paul's case, only a true apostle can do it. Otherwise, we lose the indication and the effect and the intent. But that's what some in the modern age would have us believe. Because God can, and here's, why they, here's how they say it. I've heard this many times. God can do whatever he wants. He's doing whatever he wants through me. As if somehow that's a panacea and somehow got to take care of all the problems that we have with the scriptures. God can do whatever he wants. Right. He can do whatever he wants. However, if he said that he's doing this at this time and he's doing it through these people, then he's not going to turn around and say, okay, well, that didn't matter. We'll just do it however. Because, beloved, you know, if anyone can do them for any reason, then they can't be the signs of a true apostle, and they have no reason to exist. By their very definition, they're pointing to something. It's not, they're not an end in themselves. It's also important, I think, to point out that the word wonders simply describes the effect of them. The effect was to create amazement and astonishment and shock. I mean, it's just so obvious that they were supernatural. It was just astonishing when people saw what they did. So you have this astonishment and, and this amazement and a shock people looking at this sign like they've just seen pointing to this, this man. And, and the works of power or miracles that we just saw, uh, it just shows the supernatural source. So when the apostle did a miracle, the source was evident. It was God. The sign was obvious to point to the apostle as the spokesperson for God because of the remarkable wonder and amazement that people were drawn to the speaker for the purpose of hearing what he said. So the purpose of miracles then was a sign to verify the speaker. And it just seems very consistent with the word of God if we understand the word of God at all, which we do, that if God ever gave anybody the ability to do miracles, to heal or cast out demons, to speak in tongues, he would give it to somebody who was speaking new revelation. Correct? That's how it fits with the Word of God. If somebody has that gift, it has to be new revelation. But we know you don't have any new revelation if you're not an apostle. So there'd be no reason to have the gift because it's supposed to point to new revelation and verify the message and the messenger. So it would point to somebody who's speaking new revelation because that's the pattern. Or if you think about if you think about a known tongue, he would give it to somebody going on the mission field, and we wouldn't have to spend years in language training. Understand? Because that would be the pattern: verifying the speaker 
who's the missionary, and the message. But we don't see that, do we? Across, across all denominations, nobody's going to the mission field from a charismatic movement and speaking in a known language to someone they haven't studied. That doesn't happen. But that's the pattern, do you see? So this foundation is very important to see. Why, do these thi- why did these things occur, and what context did they occur? See? And so knowing what we know about the real gifts, once the revelation is given, you don't need any authentication because the revelation's already there, right? If, if I want to verify a preacher today, I don't look for miracles. I see if he's consistent with... I don't have to have a miracle to verify what he's saying. I just have to open up the Word of God. If he doesn't say what it says, I don't listen to him anymore. Or if he's a peddler, or he's a shyster like many around here are, and they say things the Word doesn't say and they add to it, listen, as soon as you do that, that's it. You get no second chance. Be not many teachers those to those that are greater condemnation. Why? Because you don't get to say whatever you want. You have to take it from the kitchen and bring it to the table and not spill any. It's already there. You're just a deliverer. You're a table waiter, an under rower. purpose of miracles was to verify the apostles at a time when there was not yet the writing of the New Testament. Recognize them not as miracle workers, but as true apostles who preached the true gospel and wrote the true word of God. We saw the same thing in the Old Testament, didn't we, with Moses and Aaron? Wasn't that how he established that he was speaking for God, both among his people and among the Egyptians? How did he establish it? Signs and wonders. Was it so he would be known as a wonder worker? No. So when he said what he said from God, they would believe him. You know, if you think about um, uh, the prophets after after them, you know, Elijah, Elisha, and others, you know, same thing, right? Elijah's on Mount Carmel. All the prophets of Baal are hanging around, you know, they're doing their thing, cutting themselves and piling up their wood and putting on the altar. Call louder, maybe your God's asleep. You know, Elijah's mocking them. He says, okay, pour all this water on, on it. And he asks the Lord to burn it. He burned it and all the water too. Was that so Elijah could look great? So they'd say he's a miracle worker? No, it's so he could then give the gospel to a people, I might add, who were already called by his name. But it verified the message and it verified the messenger. So it's not, a, it's, it's not unusual. This pattern's just the same. And we come to the New Testament with the person of Christ. Guess what? Same thing. Explosion of miracles. Jesus comes. And how do you know he's the Messiah? John 14, 10. Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? And what's the answer? Of course they don't. They're questioning him. They're giving him a hard time about everything. The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father abiding in me does this work. In other words, I'm speaking precisely what the Father has to say. Do they believe it? No, they do not. They believe you're from Beelzebub. You're from their father, the devil. But the Father abiding in me does his works. And then he says this in verse 11. Believe me, that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. Otherwise, what's the rest, beloved? Believe because of the works themselves. What did the works point to? That he's in the Father, the Father's in him. It verified the speaker, didn't it? It verified the message. I am from the Lord. I am the Messiah. See? He authenticates his Messiahship by demonstrating his power over the kingdom of darkness by casting out demons and his power over this fallen world. So he's dealt with a supernatural world, And the natural world, he shows his power over the natural world by miracles and walking on water and and feeding the multitudes of people and making food out of nothing, right? And and reaching out and touching people and and, uh, healing. He basically banished illness in Palestine for a time uh, because he just healed everybody who came to him. Everybody who was sick, 
Right, ten people at a time, they're all sick, all healed. And the conclusion was, this points to him as a Messiah. You remember when his, uh, when Jesus was uh, with Elijah and, and, uh, and Moses at a time, and they got to see part of his glory. Do you remember that? And, uh, and the, dis- the disciples were there, and they were like, oh, man, we need to make a big tabernacle here and worship the Lord. And uh, what did God, God actually spoke to them out of the heavens. What did he say? This is my beloved son. What? Listen to him. Don't be caught up with the miracles. Don't be caught up with, with the, they're all to verify that he's what? He's my beloved son. And the word he has to say to you is the true word. And following Jesus comes to the apostles. What was their task? Well, the world had rejected Jesus. They crucified Christ. They come to the preachers of Jesus. They're going to preach the true gospel. They're going to write the true word of God. And they're going to set up the church. See? We see the acts of the apostles, how, how the church was formed. We see the, the epistles then that show us how the church is supposed to function. And, and so they're setting up the church. And, and God authenticates that with miracle power. While you're still in Acts, turn to Acts chapter 2, verse 42. Will you do that? Acts 2. 42. I'll give you a second to turn there. <clears throat> As we talk about the early church in Jerusalem, Acts is talking about this in chapter 2. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. That sounds pretty cool. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe. New church, everything's happening. It's just amazing. And many wonders and signs were taking place. How? Through the apostles. Why were they in awe? Why, why did it need to be done? Because they're calling attention to and verifying the true teachers and the correct message. And so, and we're getting ahead of ourselves, why would God need to verify a message or a messenger today? He doesn't need to. You can tell whether somebody's preaching the truth or not as a true teacher by looking at your Bible. And you can tell whether someone has a correct message because there it is. There's the correct message. Now look one chapter over, Acts chapter 3, verse 1. We're almost out of time. We're almost done. Acts 3, 1. Stick with me here. This is very important. Peter and John were going up to the temple at the ninth hour, the hour of prayer. And a man who had been lame from his mother's womb was being carried along, whom they used to set down every day at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful, in order to beg alms from those who were entering the temple. Religious people probably will be generous, and so they come. People do that all the time here at the church. They come, ask for money. Religious people they know are generous, and that's the same thing that's going on here. And he's been lame from his mother's womb, never walked in his life. Verse 3, when he saw Peter and John about to go into the temple, he began asking to receive alms. Verse 4, but Peter, along with John, fixed his gaze on him and said, look at us. Verse 5, he began to give them his attention, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I do not possess silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene. Walk. Verse 7, and seizing him by his right hand, he raised him up, and immediately his feet and his ankles were strengthened. Verse 8, with a leap, he stood upright and began to walk, and he entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. Now, beloved, 
obviously got their attention sad situation someone who's begged the whole time been on the ground the whole time you're in a third world country you know um, those who are disabled they crawl around the dirt most of the time unless there's been a ministry that's helped them uh, that's how they get around that's what they do he had some people help and carried them up here to the temple hopefully he could get some alms so he could have something to live on so obviously compassion right uh, but Peter and John were apostles and the Lord had given them the ability to perform signs wonders and and miracles and so he reaches out and he does it what was it for not necessarily to heal this lame man there's probably hundreds of other ones around right I mean it was great that he was healed I think we keep need to keep our focus on what a reason for signs and wonders all the people saw them saw him walking and praising praising God and they were taking note of him as being one who used to sit at the beautiful gate they understand they put it all together and at the temple begging alms and they were here it is, filled with wonder and amazement. It's precisely what um, Paul says. We get signs, wonders, miracles at what happened to him. Look at verse 14 of chapter 4. Later, standing before the religious leaders of the day, verse 14 of chapter 4, and seeing the man who'd been healed standing with them, nothing to say in reply. In other words, they have plenty to say, but not going to say it in front of the disciples. Here's the dude who's been lame since his mother's womb is walking around with him and so you send the disciples out in verse 15 it says but when they had ordered them to leave the council they began to confer with one another I bet saying what shall we do with these men for the fact that mark this a noteworthy miracle has taken place through them is apparent to all who live in Jerusalem and we cannot deny it what did it do it got everybody's attention, and it verified that these men, who were not noteworthy men, fishermen, common people, had something to say. Verse four, chapter 4, verse 29. So they threaten the disciples. They tell them not to speak this way anymore. They give them a beating. And the disciples go out and they pray and they say this, and now, Lord, take note of their threats and grant that your bondservants may speak your word with all confidence. While you extend your hand to what just happened, heal, didn't they just do that? And signs, that's pointing to something, right? And wonders, awe and amazement, take place through the name of your holy servant, Jesus, and when they prayed, the place where they had gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the word of God with boldness. So what happened? They got to do a miracle. It wasn't their own power. They weren't miracle workers. And it got everybody's attention. And then the religious leaders threatened them and beat them and said, don't say anything about it. But they know that they've been put on a, on a podium. Why? Because the Lord's working through them in signs, wonders, and miracles. And now they just say, Lord, help us to give the message with boldness. We know this is the reason why you're doing it. Now just give us the boldness to speak like we should. What's the reason for the miracle? Was it to heal the layman? Well, sure, there was compassion there. But beyond that, it was to verify the message and the messenger. See, same thing all the way through. And we could easily keep going, but we're out of time. Mark this, Acts chapter 14, verse 3. Therefore, they spent a long time there speaking bodily with reliance upon the Lord, who was testifying to the word of his grace, mark it, granting that signs and wonders be done by their hands. What's happening? God's given proof of his word of grace and that the message and the messenger were true by what? Granting that signs and wonders be done by their hands. 
And we went through this passage in Romans many years ago because we went verse by verse through Romans. In chapter 15, verse 17, as we get back to Paul, listen to what he says about himself. He says, therefore, in Christ Jesus, I found reason for boasting in things pertaining to God. He used to boast about himself, his education, his position. For I will not presume to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me. It's always Christ doing it, right? It's always passive. God's doing the work. Resulting in the obedience of the Gentiles by word and deed. Verse 19. The power of signs and wonders in the power of the Spirit, so that from Jerusalem and around as far as Aurelicum, I have fully preached the gospel of Christ. The wonders and the signs and the miracles paved the way so he could what? Preach the gospel of Christ. Not written yet, but this is a verification of the speaker and the message. He authenticated himself then as the Lord worked through him as a true messenger by signs and wonders. It wasn't a sign they could claim, claiming healing in, your, in Jesus' name. I'm claiming this in Jesus' name, right? I'm claiming uh, a power of a demon in Jesus. He wasn't claiming any of that. You never see any of that language anywhere, see? It wasn't a sign to entertain them. We're not going to have a healing service. Come, you're going to be blessed as we slay people in the spirit, see? Or deliver them from demons necessarily or help them hear the word of God in their own language necessarily. It's not all about those things necessarily. All of the miracle gifts were given for the purpose that they could know the speaker's message was from God and the speaker was approved from God. Why? So mark this, they could hear the saving gospel and the word of his grace that was the point of all of them. See. And, and we just barely scratched the surface blood. We could have gone on and on with this. I think you've got a pretty broad foundation to tell. You're, you're not anywhere near the edge. You're pretty solid in saying, okay, sign gifts were given to verify the message of the messenger. And they were given to a very small subset of people. And when those people died, they didn't get passed on. In fact, we see false people claiming these things. We see the seven sons of Sceva take a beating because of it. We know Paul is dealing with people in the Corinthian church who are claiming this very thing. So as we sum up this groundwork, and, and we'll close with this today because we're going to, my, my desire is to set this pattern here so we see, and then look at the modern uh, sign gift movement today and say, does it line up with these things? What do we see uh, as a context of the sign gifts? Does what's going on today line up? Okay. We just got to call that out. And so we'll, we'll take some time to do that. It gives us a chance to approach it from a different way. We've looked at sign gifts before and gifts of the Spirit before in different, uh, going through 1 Corinthians, going through Romans. But I think this gives us a different track, and I think it'll be helpful. The Bible is very consistent about this, beloved. It's um, signs and wonders and miracles all referring to the miracles as to their indication, as to their effect and their intent. It's all the same, all the way through. You back up into the Old Testament, you move into the New Testament, it's exactly the same. It hasn't changed. All through the Scriptures, certainly in the New Testament, or through the apostles and others in the early church, to authenticate the true message and the true messenger in that first century. Once Scripture was written, that part of redemptive history is over. And so I think we can see that. We'll look further next week, Lord willing, and, and uh, hopefully uh, increase our understanding of all this. Lord, let's pray. Lord, we thank you today for... Just a chance to be together, some sweet fellowship, joy to be together with the church, and to be encouraged together to sing, to pray, to give, to worship you in all the ways the first church did. Help us to be faithful to do all those things in spirit and truth. And Father, we thank you today for your our time in the Word, its clarity, uh, your consistency throughout. I'm, so, I'm sorry, Father, that the church has messed this up so badly. 
was being messed up, of course, in the first century. That's why Paul had to write so many things, but uh, we recognize it still here today. We would wish to be a church that's wise, not so we can be arrogant. Knowledge puffs up, love builds up. So we can know the truth and not be deceived and understand false teachers and who they are by what they say and what they claim and then not listen, not be deceived as Eve was, but move on to uh, more sound doctrine, move from the milk into the meat of the word, as Hebrews tells us, that what we'll do if you, if you permit. This thing is so confusing, so much disillusionment around. Father, I pray that uh, you will help us to be able to have a very solid footing here, understand why we believe what we believe. And we pray this in the name of your son, Jesus, and all God's people said.